Terry Pratchett is the best-selling author of more than 30 humorous and satirical fantasy books set in Discworld, a world very much like ours, only flatter. His latest novel finds Discworld at war and a woman who fights as part of a monstrous regiment. Welcome to the show, Terry. Hello. Terry, your world is created, and I'm wondering if when you first created Discworld, did you expect or intend for it to have the density that it has come to have over 30 books? Um. And it'd be, it would be rather surprising if I had done so. No, I created it solely as an antidote to fantasy novels. Um, in the early 80s, there was a huge uh, boom in fantasy writing, and I think there's another one going on right now. And a lot of the stuff was highly derivative. I mean, Tolkien was a major source. Um, there were plenty of good writers there, um, and there were plenty of not-so-good ones. Um, and I got just fed up with the Dark Lords. I mean, there seem to be far too many of the more differently pigmented lords, obviously, as we have to call them now. And a lot of the, the fantasy seemed to be um, cliché-ridden. So in much the same way as Douglas Adams wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I decided to write one or two Discworld books to have fun with the clichés of fantasy, to say, OK, this is what you're being told, this is how it would work if real human beings got involved. Um, and I thought I might do one or two books, and after I'd done about three, I thought, well, maybe five would be a good number, and after five, I said, well, ten, that's a nice round number, and then maybe there's going to be a f 15. Now, strictly speaking, I think there's about 31 Discworld books. Um, and... Uh, no sign of an end. Tell us how you use the relationship between the real world and disc world to create satire and parody. Um, you have to remember that you are asking the man on the tightrope to explain how he keeps his balance. And there is an obvious drawback to doing this. One is he doesn't know what the muscles are called. And the other is that he'll fall off the moment he stops to think. But if we accept that for a moment. Um, G.K. Chesterton said that the role of fantasy was to take that which is commonplace and everyday and therefore no longer looked at and pick it up and turn it around and show it to us from a new direction so that once again we see it with new eyes for the first time. And the nice thing about having a fantasy world which in some ways resembles our own, albeit um, most of the stories are set in, I suppose, conceptually, something like a, something like a kind of 18th century world like ours, um, with, with certain Victorian overtones, is that I can show you things that are familiar, but because they're in a different place... Um, the, the essential strangeness of them comes over. For example, in the main city of Ankh-Morpork, the trolls, the dwarves, the vampires, everyone's come to, earn, to make a buck. They are citizens, and the problems the city has are the problems that any city has. You know, where do you get the fresh water, that sort of thing. But there's natural um, problems as, as, as the various species congregate because trolls and dwarves ancestrally hate one another. And there's also the campaign for equal heights that thinks that dwarves are getting a, a, a raw deal. The curious thing is, um, most of the people running the campaign for equal heights are humans who, who, who think that dwarves ought to be annoyed at, 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 at phrases like lawn ornaments and 
small change. Uh, the dwarves actually aren't particularly bothered. They're there to make money, save up and go back home and buy a mine in the mountains. Um, and, and so you can kind of see where that idea is coming from. And, and there are plenty of other um, uh, uh, other little references that, that aren't laboured. There is the Silicon Anti-Defamation League, which, which, which is, is there to, to try and tell people that trolls really aren't that bad. And the races sort of clang together and, and, and kind of sort out their differences. And um, in one of the books, one of the coppers says that, that integration is, is coming on because now you'll occasionally find dwarves in troll gangs, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they, can, they, can, they can beat up on humans. Um, so kind of, there, there are things which, which, which remind us of our world, but they're set on another one. You do a great job of capturing timeless elements of modern society and medieval society and putting them in Discworld. Mm. How do you do that? It's not exactly medieval. Um, the, the world is, is, I suppose, what Tudor England would have been if no one had invented anything very much since then. Uh, but, but, but kind of, nevertheless, a kind of a modern sociology had had, had developed. Uh, but in any case, you've answered the question. You, 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 you talk about timeless things. Well, they are timeless. You get enough people together and there will be certain problems that will arise. And those problems are going to be pretty similar. They might have slightly different names and a kind of different format. But, the, the, but ultimately, it's going to be about people and people tend to act in the same kind of way, even if those people are eight foot tall and called trolls. Can you tell us about a bit about the world building that you went through to create Discworld? It was minimal. The look of the world is, well, it's flat, and it's balanced on the back of four elephants, and they ride on the back of uh, a giant turtle. And now I've told you this, you can completely forget about it, because it has practically no relevance to anything that happens in the series, any more so than the fact that we are standing on top of uh, 2,000 miles of molten iron and then a load of hot rocks. You know, it's there, let's deal with it, but what's, what's actually important is what's happening on the surface. Um, and there was no real deliberate world-building. I, I just uh, took the off-the-peg public domain consensus fantasy universe and, and, and um, wrote about it to see where it would go. You subjected it to, as you said, put real people in mm. those fantasy situations. Could you talk a little bit about the role of the details of fan in fantasy and satire? Because you have a great eye for detail. Well, ulti ultimately, it's all about texture in, in any case. Everything comes back to the characters. Um, I spend a lot of time watching people and thinking about the things they do. and It's amazing how character can be given away by such minor things as how people clap their hands. There are different ways of clapping your hands, different ways of laughing, different ways of being silent. Um, 
and it's quite easy to build up a character. But what, what I say to, to wannabe authors, if I'm doing a writing course, is, is that character does not consist of saying he had blue eyes and, and blonde hair and he was about six foot two. Character is describing the shape that people leave in the world. So you don't necessarily describe the character, you describe what they do, the effect they have on other people, the shape that they leave as they move through the world. Um, and then you rely on the fact that, that it's highly unlikely, unless you're writing a book printed on thick cardboard about a boy and his dog, that it's, not the f it's very unlikely that it's the first book your reader has ever read. So the reader will come to a book in the same way that a filmgoer goes to a movie with a whole mental toolbox of, of how stories work and how, or how movies work, and you can make use of that. You can make use of their own knowledge of humanity and all the previous stories they've read to help your story. Now, if you're going to ask me how exactly you do that, I'll have to say by doing little kind of subtle things, uh, which I can't quite describe, but I know what they are when I'm doing them. You have a lot of fun with your characters, and you seem to really like them all, even the, the characters who are somewhat despicable. Well, yeah, you like them as a character, you know, you, you, you leave aside their moral stance. If you think you've got a character who's, who's well-crafted, then um, there's, uh, uh, then you can have fun and uh, enjoyment in working with that character. In one of the books, there's, there's Evil Harry Dread. Now, he's a Dark Lord, but he's never really succeeded as a Dark Lord Oddly enough, because he's really the Dark Lord's Dark Lord. I mean, we know all the things that Dark Lords do. You, you, you must always have cells which have a ventilation grid just big enough to be pulled off the wall and allowing people to escape. And, and all, your, all your guards must have full-face armour so that the hero can, can, can knock out a guard and, and go somewhere in his armour. And the jailer must always be big and drunk and always go to sleep close enough to the bars for the hero to reach through with a piece of wood or a spoon and hook the keys off the belt. You know, how many belts do you know? I've got a big, big hook, you know, for the keys, but jailers always have that. Um, it's all the cliches of, 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 of you know, the, the, the kind of evil world dominator, but evil Harry Dredd, you know, he, he's tried to follow all these rules. So he starts up with, a, you know, like a little shed of doom because he hasn't got enough money for a tower. And he kind of starts terrorising people in a small way and then... Just as it's beginning to pay dividends, um, a, a, another dark lord moves in and sets up out of town somewhere where the parking is better. And, and you know, he, he's nowhere and he has to go off and start again. And he meets up with a bunch of heroes uh, who he's known for ages because they all like him because he, he knows how to be a dark lord. You should always be able to escape. And he understands that because that's how it works in fiction. And he's, 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 he, he's teamed up with them and he's saying... But I'm going to betray you. I have to do it. I have to betray you. I'm a dark lord. And say, yeah, we know. You're a good lad. Yeah, we know you're going to do it. There's all the old heroes. and the, you know, with the, the, that, was in the, that was in the illustrated novel, um, The Last Hero, where all, all the heroes are in their 80s, but they're still doing it. Uh, and, 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 and they've done it all before. They've, they've fought all the monsters before. They've, they've met all the gods but they're, you know, they're determined not to die. Your novels have a lot of strong women characters in mm. them. I, the ones I've read, I never f met a woman character who was a shrinking violet. Mm. I find it very hard to do. 
uh, I, mean, I think it's slightly an, an Achilles heel. They might start out like shrinking violets, but by the time I finish with them, they're Miss Piggy. <laughs> um, in many cases, it, it's good that they are. Um, uh, and, and I'm not quite certain I know how to do... I, and I write them as people uh, rather than women, I think. Um, and, and There doesn't seem to be a lot of gender identity in this world. Everybody does everything. Well, to an extent, they... they Eventually, they. When I, in Monstrous Regiment, I think there is the, the gender identity is what it's all about. But there are clearly women in there who are women. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think that I'm not actually certain that there are that many weak women around. Mm -hmm. There are, there are women who, um, by by training mm -hmm. or or habit or because of long-term strategy mm -hmm. <laughs> might appear weak. But women tend to be more capable in most situations than men. Let's talk a little bit about your latest novel, Monstrous Regiment. It's uh, more of a standalone novel than many of the previous ones, isn't it? Um, well, I guess we're now sort of in, uh, into the fourth decade uh, of, of Discworld books. Uh, and there was always the problem, do you, a pander is the wrong word, but, but shall we say, do, do you serve the, fat, the loyal fans that have been with you for the last 30, 31 books? Uh, which means every novel carries a, an overhead of, of, of stuff that a new reader is probably going to have some difficulty with. Or do you find ways of writing a novel which is accessible to the new readers but has enough stuff in there for the, the the guys that have been reading me for the last 20 years. So Monstrous Regiment is definitely a Discworld novel. Uh, but the main thing that makes it a Discworld novel is, is, if you like, the tone and approach of the writing. It's set on Discworld in a part of Discworld that has been mentioned before but uh, not written about. And some of some characters that have have appeared in previous novels are in there in a fairly minor role. But you've got to remember, Discworld is 21 years old next year. If I was still writing the same, you know, books like The Colour of Magic, the first one, I would have gone mad. Unless I can change things and take new directions and new approaches, I'll end up banging my head uh, on the computer screen until it bleeds. So there, there, it, 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 is standalone to the extent that probably uh, there's no major characters in there that will appear in, in another book, unless I find it, it, that they should. <laughs> I never know. But Night Watch, the previous adult one, that um, was, was very much made up of, of characters that had appeared before, but written in such a way, I hope, that someone that hadn't read Discworld... Um, would work out what was going on fairly, fairly quickly. Um, anyone with a, with a smattering of historical knowledge and a, and a, a nodding acquaintance with fantasy writing um, doesn't find it too hard, I think, to get involved even at this stage. No, no, I found it quite easy. I had read the first novel mm -hmm. and then skipped directly to Nightwatch. Mm. And I found Nightwatch to be a really compelling as a 
police procedural. You really? Oh, yes, that's the point. Because it's a police procedural, we know how police procedurals go, even if this is somewhat of a medieval police procedural. Um, that's the thing, for example, uh, uh, one of the previous books was The Truth, and it's a Discworld newspaper novel. A, a guy almost by accident starts running a newspaper which develops from the the the... the the real-world origins of a newspaper, which was a kind of circular letter that you're paid to write to various nobles that live outside the town, you know. Uh, to my lord, so-and-so, much much excitement this week because... And so so the, the, the origin of the newspaper was a kind of new sheet that some clerk was paid to send to all the people out in the provinces so they could keep in touch with what was happening in the city. And for various reasons, this, this develops quite quite quickly and then he has to confront things like what is my job I'm telling the truth but what is the truth how do I know what's the truth am I qualified to find out what the truth is I've got this pen and this pen and this notepad and suddenly I have power but I haven't earned this power and all the things that you think about when if you actually do start out in journalism um, do, do I believe this guy what do I write how do I fill this you know it, it, um, so it's a newspaper novel and it's also a Discworld novel uh, but because it's a newspaper novel, you've got a vague feel of... We know about newspapers. We know about how journalists behave and how they're supposed to behave. So so you're not left wondering what the hell is going on. You think, yeah, it's a newspaper novel, but it's in this particular society there are trolls and there are dwarves and there are vampires. Uh, in the truth, the, the newspaper's photographer is a vampire, which is a bit of a bummer because he uses flash photography. <laughs> He's prepared to suffer for his art. I, and I've witnessed this in <laughs> Monstrous Regiment yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, It's getting better, yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about how you use magic to parody technology? There's very little magic in Discworld. Discworld is a magical place, and, and there are wizards. Um, but there's precious little waving of wands. I mean, there is, there is really none at all. Um, the, the, the magic in this world is, is perhaps equivalent to something like quantum physics in our own. I'm just trying to think of, of what there is in Monstrous Regiment that could be described as magical, and there is, in fact, nothing whatsoever. No, no. Um, except the universe itself is clearly magical. Yes, there's a werewolf in there, and this is a, this is a kind of an acceptable thing, and there are zombies. Um, but they're they're into you know, as it, we might have some difficulty. But this is a world where there are such things as zombies and werewolves, and some of them are holding down a decent job. And and so you know, that you you don't make too much of a comment of, uh, about the fact that Reg is a zombie, you know. And, and so that that um, if he's feeding, I think at that particular time he's feeding a captive buzzard with strips of meat and doesn't notice that it started to eat his fingers. You know? It's very difficult if you're a zombie and a bird has just eaten your fingers because you want to make it throw up. But the only way you can make it throw up is stick your fingers down its throat and they're there already. <laughs> so you get you get a bit of humour out of that, but but no big deal is made about the fantasy element because it's a commonplace to the people in the world, which in a sense makes makes it funny to us. Now in in the We Free Men, the the last um, children's book set on Discworld, magic clearly. It does work, and there are witches and and and, uh, and and such things as magical spells. But even then, it's treated as a commonplace thing, rather than something with little twinkly stars around it. You took uh, a turn 
couple years ago to write the amazing Moritz and his educated mm-hmm, rodents mm-hmm. and follow that up with the We yeah. Free Men, both books for children. Yeah. What inspired you to do that? Uh, th- there's a certain marketing element, I have to admit, but, but, but not a cynical one. Um, it's quite hard to write a book uh, about a talking cat and a bunch of intelligent and highly moral rats without it being a children's book. Now, Watership Down uh, was written by Richard Adams as an adult book, but you will find it has now been subsumed into young adult literature as the years have gone by. I don't know why it is. It's, It's the way we perceive books. Maybe it's something to do with marketing. So I thought, the first novel I ever wrote was a children's book, and I, I, I've done six others since, so I do know how to do it, and I thought it would be quite fun to write Discworld, um, to do kind of a parallel Discworld series for children, not talking down to them and relating to the adult series as well, uh, because fantasy is the ultimate crossover genre in any case. It would be more fun for me. It would also enable me to kind of reintroduce some of the concepts because um, it's, in, it's in the nature of a book where you have a, a young protagonist, a nine-year-old girl in this case, that they're going to have to find out stuff. And that's good, because the reader wants to find out stuff as well. So they, they can kind of sit there on the, on the character's shoulders while stuff is being found out. And it just seemed to me to be a good idea. Um, we, we seem to market books based on the the age and sex of the protagonist so if it's a nine-year-old girl it must be a it must be a a, a book for for girls um on that basis of course moby dick was very highly thought of in cetacean circles and obviously the the whales must have all turned up at you know to the signing very big among whales moby dick you're you've been writing uh, discworld novels for 20 years mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about the aging process as part of the writing process? <laughs> um, I've become better at it. I think that, that's, that's a simple uh, answer. Um, have I become more cynical? I don't know. The novels, people have said the novels have become darker. They've so- certainly become uh, better. I mean, they're better written. The characters are, 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 are fleshed out more. Um, my approach is a little older, perhaps. Um, but I think largely what I'm saying, and I've just become, I, I've been writing for such a long time that I've become better at it. Uh, I'm happy, I think, say, Monstrous Regiment and The We Free Men and Nightwatch were, are, are better than the early Discworld books, which people still like, but those books were, were funny and written to be funny. The later books... Well, I've discovered the joy of plot. If, if you can get the plot working well and the characters interacting well, um, the humour will arise out of the situations. Uh, it won't give the impression of having been grafted on. And actually, it's not too bad in the first books either, but I think it would just have been a general improvement all round. And almost coincidentally, I've, I've got 20, 20 years older while doing it. One constant aspect of your books is religion. There's a bunch of gods hanging mm-hmm. out around yeah. Discworld. In your latest novel, you confront what happens when a religion becomes a danger to its worshippers. Mm. 
Could you well, tell it's us basically, what... it's what happens when, when, when your God begins to lose it. I mean, must, when you think about it, this is not a particularly unfamiliar concept to anyone that, 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 that's read fantasy or mythology, but, you know, you're a God, you're pretty powerful, really. Um, and there's really kind of no kind of governing body that can sort of step in and, and force you into early retirement if you actually start to, to do the cosmic equivalent of wearing your underpants on your head. And, and Nuggan, who's the, 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 the god of, um, uh, of the, the, uh, the little country most, most uh, involved in the, the plot of Monsters Regiment, um, he's taken to, to uh, fulminating against things like people with red hair and babies and dogs and Swedes and uh, by which I mean the rutabagas. Uh, not, not Swedes, who are perfectly nice people and build Volvos and... and and, and don't go to war an awful lot, um, and and a lot of a lot of the abominations of Nagan, as they are called, make no sense and are counterproductive, and so the whole country has become kind of schizoid. Uh, you have to obey your god, but if you obey your god, it's actually quite dangerous. You probably end up starving, and, and he's banning things like sneezing, and that is quite hard. So suddenly. Everyone is guilty because you can't help but disobey, and and uh, it's, it's part of the, you know. I suppose a, a sub theme of the book is this is what happens when your gods go mad. You like to do a bit of personification, and of course, the most famous anthropomorphic personification you have in your books is death. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, the book that I'm currently reading, Mort, is could almost be uh, Discworld's A&E biography of death. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what compels, you find so compelling about the character of death? Well, yes, this may not be the answer that you actually want. Uh, Discworld works because it takes things seriously. It takes what, uh, for example, you know, we get through life by accepting things that are a bit illogical and we call them normal because that saves us lying awake all night wondering what the hell's going on. Discworld works by looking at those things and taking them seriously and then thinking what then would happen next. Here's an example. Everyone knows from all the B-horror B movies there have ever been that the mad scientist, Count Dracula or whoever, has got a servant called Igor. It's just one of those things that happens. So uh, in Uberwald, which is, which is kind of Discworld equivalent of Transylvania, if you knock on, any, on the door of any castle or lonely chateau, it'll always be opened by Igor. There's a, there's a whole clan of Igors who are very, very, very good at transplant surgery. They all sound exactly alike. They can tell each other apart. Um, and th- they've become quite useful in, in the plots. And they, they all speak exactly like Igor is supposed to speak and, um, and have a lot of fun with them. Now, death is always pictured as, you know, the skeleton, the side, the white horse. Um... So I thought, okay, let's assume that's true. Does he have a day off? 
I mean, how does he look at does he does he do his own housework? I mean, how does it all work? And when I started looking at that, it actually became quite interesting because death has worked for so long with human beings, he's absolutely fascinated with us. I mean, we have what, seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred years of life on the on, on our world. So why do we spend all that time making life difficult for ourselves? He just can't work out where we're coming from. I mean, he knows where we're going to, but where we're coming from is a complete mystery to him. And, 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 and it's because of this fascination and, and his complete failure to understand um, how humans tick that he becomes funny. And, and indeed, when, when you read death misunderstanding how humans work, you wonder if we quite understand how humans work he's a very i think he's probably the most favorite character of the fans who always want death to appear in another book which is kind of weird i think um could you talk a little bit about fantasy versus magic realism oh yeah that's simple magical realism is fantasy wearing a collar and tie magical realism was a term invented by reviewers when one of their chums has written a fantasy novel, but they don't want to tar them with the brush of fantasy, because everyone knows that's all about, you know, swords and sorcery and idiot stuff like that. And, and uh, it's not very highbrow, so we'll call it magical realism, and that's okay. Um, Margaret Atwood gets away with, uh, with stuff like this. Um, she says that, that um, uh, P.D. James has done the same sort of thing. You, you write a book which clearly is science fiction, it is science fiction. It, it's got, it, it, it smells like science fiction. It reads like science fiction. Well-written science fiction, admittedly. And then they come out with things like, but it's not science fiction because it doesn't have robots and ray guns in it. And you think, yes, but most science fiction doesn't have robots and ray guns in it. I mean, this doesn't actually matter. Um, to an extent, insofar as I understand the, 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 uh, the, the difference between fantasy and science fiction this world has, has become uh, sorry fantasy and magical realism this world this world is slightly more towards the magical realist side because as we've said monstrous regiment apart from the species of some of the characters there's actually nothing in here which is fantastic in fact i have to admit that with i could have sat down and turned it into a historical novel set on the planet Earth. I'd have had some difficulty towards the end. Uh, I'd have to map, map it in a slightly different way. But um, there is nothing particularly fantastic about Monstrous Regiment except everything about it. <laughs> We're talking the kind of code here because I don't, we, you know, we don't want to give away some of the, the, the main... Uh, uh, plot, points. plot points but I think you'd agree um, towards the end uh, it, it would be a little difficult um, but the basic idea I mean, the, the, of, of, of a woman uh, pretending to be a man in order to join the army that's happened thousands of times I mean probably tens of thousands uh, large numbers of women fought as men in the American Civil War and the last woman to be exposed if that is the word, as a man in the British Army, was in 1929, and she had reached the rank of brigadier. I think the medical officer must have had a day off. Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, I, I, this world has evolved so much now that, that possibly fantasy is the wrong name. But I always call myself a fantasy writer out of solidarity, brothers. <laughs> because, you know, it, it's like the old joke about what you call a rich Mexican, a Spaniard. You know, I, I, I think that if you're a fantasy writer or a science fiction writer, you, you stay true to your origins. You don't suddenly decide because you become successful that, in fact, you're writing something else. You introduce a new technology, so to speak, in Monstrous Regiment, mm -hmm. clackers. Mm -hmm. The clacks. The, the clacks. clacks. Yeah. Um, there is no steam power on Discworld. There, there is, uh, electricity is kind of vaguely understood, but only in terms of lightning conductors. But nevertheless, there's vast ingenuity. So there is a, um, a continent-spanning network of semaphore towers. Um, and just as an aside, I, 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 uh, I'm certain that you have read a book called The Victorian Internet. No, I can't remember the author. I'm sorry. Um, well worth reading because you'll, you, you will be surprised at how far the telegraph had evolved before the telephone came along. It wasn't just one little guy sitting there tapping out, tapping out the news that the staged Denver had been lobbed. They'd got to the point where you could send 10 telegraph messages along the same wire at the same time. And this was in the days of electricity, not electronics. Vast amounts of ingenuity were being poured into telegraphy. And then the telephone came along, and then you kind of start again from square one, but at a different level. In the same way that the semaphore system had certainly progressed beyond a man with a couple of flags. And the French, being the French, didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, and, and built quite an effective semaphore system that could move messages quite quickly and then it then eventually the telegraph took over and, and and i'm very very interested in retro technology and it is quite possible to get a high speed semaphore system not with a bunch of windmills it's a it's a lot more um, a lot more ingenious than that and i thought this is great because i'm nearly on the way to getting a, a kind of um, human-powered internet. Um, and I have the, the, the network of towers going from one end of the continent to the other, and there are all kinds of... of uh, as, as the books progress, it, it, it is now part of... just part of how things work. Um, they've got very bad roads, but they can get a, they can get a message from about 4,000 miles away in, in about a day and a half. Uh, and in fact, in the book I'm working on now, I've worked out actually how you can put a virus into a semaphore system. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun. I mean, I, 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 I think lots of, lots of people that like fantasy and science fiction like retro technology. Uh, it, 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 it's, kind of, it's, it's, it's the whole Jules Verne type thing, you know, steam-powered submarines, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and you would be amazed... At, at how ingenious people can be in the absence of things like the petrol engine, uh, um, electronics, the telephone. A hero of mine is Sir George Cayley, who is 
regrettably very little known. And he was the father of modern aeronautics. Um, the Wright brothers uh, publicly uh, proclaimed their debt to him. Count Zeppelin um, paid tribute to him as the father of airship design. Um, he lived in the UK in the early 19th century, built the first modern man-carrying glider. His coachman was forced to get into it and, and glided successfully across the valley, across a valley, um, broke his arm upon landing and gave in his notice. <laughs> uh, and what is, what, is so what is kind of so science fictional about the guy is that what he needed was a petrol engine. He'd worked out how wings work. Leonardo da Vinci didn't do that. He drew pictures of birds, but he didn't come up with the science of wings. Cayley did. He shot birds in order to mount wings on a special device of his that measured the amount of lift a wing would have. He understood how aeroplanes worked. He built um, tiny, tiny little steam engines with a boiler about the size of my finger, made of a copper foil. And in fact, it was touch and go as to whether uh, the, the, um, the propeller turned or the boiler exploded. He built a model flying steam-powered aircraft, but they wouldn't scale up. Once you try and scale up a steam engine into a man-carrying aircraft, the steam engine is too heavy, and where the hell do you put the coal and all the other, you know, it just, it, it becomes impractical. And he was crying out for a decent two-stroke aero engine, and, and, you know, he had to wait the best part of 70, you know, he was dead before one got invented. And yet we remember him every day, and we don't know it, because he designed the bicycle wheel. He was the man that came up with the idea. He, why did he do it? He wanted his aeroplanes to land softly, and uh, he wanted wheels that were light. Now, up until that time, the wheel relied on the physical strength of the spokes. The spokes held the rim away from the hub, and they had to be tough, and wheels were heavy things. Um... Cayley came up with the idea of the rim being thin, the hub being small, but the spokes being wires under tension, just like a bicycle wheel. So the, 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 the wheel was made of small components under stress, and together they made a very, very strong wheel with a certain elasticity in, in it. And he designed those so his aeroplanes could land, his model aeroplanes could land softly. And that was it. Effectively, he invented the bicycle wheel. And, and except for a, a few students of, of, of the history of technology, the guy's forgotten. He drew designs of Zeppelins in like 1810, explaining how they would have to work. And he was bang on the money. If only someone had given him, you know, we, if only someone had given him a, a working petrol engine in about 1810, the world would have been a different place. Sorry, that's a bit, a bit of a rant on my part, but I'm a great... I think George Cayley was a great guy. Well, speaking of ranting, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's often a part of works of humor and satire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, tell us some of your favorite rants in your books, and what, when do you know to bring one in? Uh, well, in Monsters Regiment, the, 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 
the the is, is there a rant in there? I suppose it's un, it's behind everything. There is a war that no one knows how to stop, and no one is particularly anxious to keep it going. Um, but as, as, as I think there's a quote somewhere in the book. Um, it's, it's easy to start a war because all you have to do is shout "charge" or "fire," um, but it's quite hard to stop a war by shouting because by then it's so noisy that nobody can hear you and that's really what is happening there, there, there is a war which both sides effectively are going to lose the mere existence of the war is just draining the life away from a whole region there is really no point to the war um and and it takes my heroine and and uh, some of the the um friends shall we say she, she she picks up on her journey actually to bring the war to a closure rather than a victory or a defeat and it's just possible that that that, 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 that that's possibly the best way to end the war um i don't like stupidity i mean we we we, we don't we, we we're supposed to be um we, we call ourselves Homo sapiens, and I think Homo sapiens would be a very good idea. Um, but but uh, sometimes uh, I think we're just a rather bright chimpanzee. We, we, we haven't quite lost all the monkey aspects yet.